<clears throat> Paul's in the middle of a discussion about the role of the law in the place of the believer's life and the role that it plays in the matters of salvation. And uh, he's been doing that through chapter 6 and into chapter 7. He began chapter 7 by talking about <clears throat> that the law is a binding on a person only as long as they live and uh, uses the illustration of a marriage that once a spouse dies, the, the other spouse is set free from the bounds uh, of that marriage. Well, in the same way, a Christian has died. And we've been set free from our uh, bondage to the law so that we might belong to another, to Jesus Christ. And uh, so that's where we are. Paul now is going to in, uh, explain a little more what then is the, the role of the law since, he says in verse 6, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. And uh, so in verses 7 through 13, Paul's going to be uh, giving a defense of the law, that the law is not the problem. Something else is the problem. Uh, let's give our attention to God's Word. Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 7. What then shall we say? <clears throat> that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Our Father, we thank you that you've given this word by your spirit and that these words are true and that these words are life. So we ask again, give us the eyes and the, to, re, to see it and the heart to receive it and to see above all the wonder and the beauty of Jesus as the, the only one who can save us from the law and from sin. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> if you were to take a survey of older saints and to ask them, what is it in their Christian life that brought them the most tears? What do you think they would say? As we walk this pilgrim road, there are all sorts of trials, and we shed many tears on this journey. We shed tears over the death of loved ones, over uh, children who are not walking with the Lord. We shed tears over unanswered prayers, unfulfilled dreams, unexpected hardships, but I would submit with a high degree of certainty that there's absolutely nothing that causes more grief or more tears in the life of a Christian than their own ongoing battle with sin. 
The reason for that, of course, is that we live in this temporary tension caused by the fact that we've been born again. God, in His grace, has given us the Holy Spirit so that we have a new heart that finds it delights in obedience. There's, there's something within us by the grace of God that, that hungers for righteousness. We want to be holy. That's, that's true of you if you're a Christian. There's something in you, a new, a new hunger, a new desire. You want to please God. And yet, in this time, uh, the flesh still remains, and the flesh does not desire to please God. The, the flesh desires sin, and we live in this tension, this dynamic battle between what the Spirit desires and what the flesh desires, as Paul talks of in Galatians 5.17. The, the, the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the desires of the flesh to keep you from doing what you want to do. That's where we live. That's the battle of the Christian life, and nowhere is that battle captured and explained so thoroughly and honestly as here in Romans chapter 7. It's a wonderful window <clears throat> into the truth that we experience as Christians uh, so that we can say with honesty, uh, with Paul, O wretched man, O wretched woman that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Well, our text this morning, as I said, is part of a larger conversation concerning the relationship between the believer and the law of God. And, and Paul has, as throughout these first six chapters, uh, six and a half chapters, he said some very shocking things about the law. Just recently in 6.14, he said that it, you, the Christian, are no longer under law but under grace. And in the first part of chapter 7, he said that the Christian has died to the law, that we're no longer bound to the law. We don't belong to the law. Verse 6, we have been released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So, brothers and sisters, something real and radical and wonderful happened to you regarding your relationship to the law and thus your relationship to God when you were united to Jesus Christ by faith. Something new and radical and wonderful happened to you. When you came to Christ by faith through the work of the Holy Spirit, there was a radical change in your relation to the law and thus your relation to God. So that the guiding principle of your life and your relationship to God is no longer do this and live, but the guiding principle is believe this and live. Believe and live. We are saved by grace through faith. You see, the doing has already been done in the perfect life of Jesus Christ, the perfect obedience of Christ. And now by faith, we live under the glorious reign of the grace of God. And we need to let that truth settle down into our lives because there's something within us, unbelief, that resists that truth. And we're continually tempted to think, particularly in times of trouble, that we actually do live under the law and that God is dealing with us according to our sin, not according to His grace 
and mercy in Christ Jesus. I'm not saying God won't discipline us, you, uh, you or me for our sin, but that's an act of grace, not judgment. There's no condemnation left for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our relationship to the law has fundamentally been changed. Now, if that sounds a little too libertarian to your ears, just try to imagine how it sounded to the ears of first century Jews and even Jewish Christians in Paul's day. It sounded outrageous. It sounded like something no sincere man of God would ever say, because it sounds like Paul is demeaning the law, which, by the way, is the law God himself gave to Moses at Mount Sinai. And it it sounds opposed to what we read in the Scripture, how others respond to the law. For instance, in the Psalms. Think about Psalm 1. What do we know in Psalm 1 about the righteous man? Well, we know that his delight is in the law of the Lord, and and on that law he meditates day and night. That's, That's what the righteous man does. He loves the law of God. David says it in Psalm 119, oh, how I love thy law. I meditate on it day and night. And so how do you have the righteous man of Psalm 1 and the, and the, the godly king of Psalm 119 saying, I love the law, and Paul clearly sounding like he's belittling and demeaning and disparaging the law? Well, in our text this morning, Paul answers the charge, and he gives his defense of the law and helps us understand both what its role is and what it cannot do. So Paul begins, what shall we say? Is that the law is sin? No, by no means. I'm not saying that. By no means. The law is, is, is good. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. The question is, what is the law for? What is the role that the law plays in matters of salvation? And there are several things we'll see in our text. We'll see that the law exposes sin. That's that's something that it does very well. It exposes sin. Unfortunately, we'll see that it also provokes sin because of our sinful nature. And it is in no way a solution for sin. The law is no match for sin. It has no answer for the the power of sin. It can't in any way rescue us. For that, we're going to need a Savior. We will need Jesus. That's the point of our text this morning. And so let's begin. The law reveals sin. Paul says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. He said something similar in chapter 3:20, where he writes, through the law, we become conscious of sin. You see, the law is like the light, God's brilliant million-watt light bulb that, that shines into this dark world and exposes things that were previously hidden. That's what the law does in the world. You see, natural man, after the fall of Adam, we live with a very, very shallow, twisted misinterpretation of what sin actually is. Uh, To the common man who has any sense of sin, and all do because of the law within them, but to the common man, sin is just what it means to be human. 
It's what humans do. Every, everyone sins. It's not really that big of a deal. In fact, sin is, is fun. It's pleasurable. In some ways, it's good. It, it adds spice to life. Righteousness is boring. I'm sure you've seen advertisers speak of a product as sinfully delicious. Let me ask you, did that look appealing to you? There's that chocolate little thing, box of chocolate ice cream, sinfully delicious. That sounds good, doesn't it? You see, that, that's, that's how we think about sin. And the law comes and, and throws the lights on. You ever been in a dark room and someone hit the switch and blinding light and suddenly you see all the things you couldn't see before? Well, that's what the law does. It, it just hits the switch. And, and suddenly you see that this little thing, that, this little sin in your life that, that, that's very human and, and seems very simple and harmless, suddenly you see what it actually is. You see that that, that sin is cosmic treason against a holy living God. It's a, it's a horrifying assault on the beauty of God and the goodness of God and the justice of God. It's a sin against the kindness and the grace of God. And that little sin that seemed like such a small thing now is revealed to be this, this awful rebellion against God, the God who is, the God who made this whole world, the God who holds your life in His hand. And here you've been spitting in His face with this little pet sin. And it deserves damnation. That's what it actually deserves. It, it doesn't deserve a slap on the hand. doesn't deserve a mild rebuke. It deserves for the ground to open up underneath you and for you to fall into the abyss of hell, never to, re, to return. That's what that sin deserves. And that's what the law does. You see, it, it reveals the truth. It shines the light on what sin is actually is. Now, how did, how did that knowledge happen for Paul? He points to the Tenth Commandment. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You see, Paul was a good Jewish boy. He grew up in a Jewish home. He knew the law from infancy. He, he, he kept it as best he knew, right? He, he honored his parents, not perfectly, but he didn't steal, he didn't kill, he didn't commit adultery. And as a Pharisee, he carefully, scrupulously obeyed all the commands of the law, not just the commands of the law, but all the other commands that the scribes had over the years added to the law. And so in his mind, Paul was in a great position regarding the law. He had no fear of the law. He was in compliance. He was blameless before the law. Very confident about that until the light went on on the 10th commandment. And as you see, suddenly Paul realized the sin in his life. Because you see, the 10th commandment addresses very specifically the heart, it addresses what you want, it addresses what you desire, what you think about in your secret moments. And that command exposed him. It revealed his sin. How? Well, Paul says in verse 8, sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. 
What we need to see is that the law reveals sin at, at two levels. At the first level, it, it, it reveals sin by just naming certain behaviors as sin, right? The, the Ten Commandments do this very, very well. Thou shalt not very specifically do these specific things. And the Tenth Commandment, you see, came to Paul. Paul was a covetous man. Of course he was. Um, before the, the, the law threw the light on, but he just didn't realize what an awful thing it was. But then the law came and named the sin, and he found himself to be full of it. He desired all kinds of things that were contrary to the will of God. I, re, I remember Dr. Dirk Bergsma, my, my preaching professor at Westminster, California Seminary, and he was talking about a sermon that he preached on the Seventh Commandment. And after the service, a woman in tears came and asked if she could meet with him and, uh, and so he did, and, and she confessed that the law had just revealed to her that she was living in flagrant violation of the seventh commandment. Now, this is a, a woman born and raised in the church. And she was in this relationship, and she knew it wasn't right, but it didn't seem like that big of a deal. It seemed normal and natural and permissible, and, and everyone else seemed very fine with it until, you see, the law of God exposed her as guilty of adultery and in dangers of all the penalties that belong to adulterers. The light went on. And she was horrified. She said, I'm an adulteress. I'm guilty. And that's what the law does. It names our sin exposes the truth of our sin. It tells us of the penalty that we deserve because of our sin. That's one level. But the law does more than that. It also exposes sin at a deeper, in a deeper sense. Notice what Paul says again in verse 8. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. What's he talking about? Well, you see, the, the commandment revealed to Paul that sin was not just something out there that you shouldn't do, some practice to be avoided. The problem is that sin is in here a principle, a power that can't be avoided. So sin is this internal twisted desire to do things it, that God forbids. It desires things that God forbids. The law reveals that there's something fundamentally wrong with us. And Paul says, I was living my life, I was alive in the sense that he was very confident, he was Things were fine. He was at peace with God. He was, he was doing fine. But then the law came, the lights went on, and he realized something's deeply wrong with me. Because our problem is, is not just that we do things God forbids. It's deeper than that. The problem is we desire things God forbids. We want to do things God forbids because he forbids it. That's the problem. So when God's law comes and says, thou shalt not, sin within us comes alive. And sin says, well, why not? That sounds fun. That sounds enjoyable. Others seem to do it with no consequences, no problem. In fact, they, 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 
They glowingly speak of it. That looks like life. That looks like the answer for the hunger of my heart. Let's do that. And so often we do. Knowing it's wrong, contrary to God's commands, knowing that God says the end of it is death, for the wages of sin is death, and yet we choose it anyway. That's what's wrong with us. St. Augustine in his Confessions talks about the moment he discovered this truth about himself. You probably have heard the story where he talks about going out with some of his buddies, a teenager, and they stole some pears from the neighbor's tree. And he, and he acknowledges in his confessions, it wasn't because they wanted the pears. Uh, he had much better pears at his, at his own home. In fact, he says, we threw those pears to the pigs. What they wanted was the thrill of doing something evil. That's what they wanted. He says, we wanted those pears simply and precisely because they were forbidden. Now, how sick is that? You see, our, the law reveals that our sin problem is vastly deeper than we had imagined. We gladly choose sin when there's no sensible reason. The only reason is we choose it and we treasure it because it is forbidden. Because God says don't. That's the twist. That's the bent for which there's no fix. We, we cannot, we have no power to change that bent within us. We cannot fix the depth of our depravity. And so consequently, secondly, the law then proves to be death. It reveals sin and it proves to be death. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. That's really strong language. It lied to me. It killed me. What's going on? Well, the, the commandment, as Paul says, promises life, right? The commandment is, the, the, the principle of the, of the commandment is, do this and live. You'll find that in various places in Scripture. For instance, Leviticus 18.4. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Same thing in Ezekiel 20.11. If a person does them, he shall live. That's the promise of the law. And Paul says, sin seized that promise and deceived me. Well, how did sin deceive Paul? It deceived Paul by making the law seem doable. There's the command, do this and live, and sin comes along and says, that doesn't look so hard. I mean, are you in the habit of killing people? Do you just take things that aren't your own? It's normal practice? You love your parents. This is not that hard. Stay out of your neighbor's, you know, wife's bed. This, this isn't rocket science. This is very doable. And so Paul uh, committed himself to it. Remember, he's a Pharisee. He's, he's absolutely all in, keeping the law. Why? Because he thought that it was doable and, and that as, a, as a, 
the law from God that this was the path to righteousness. He was convinced it was the path to righteousness. This was the path into the favor of God. This was the path to everlasting life. Now, of course, the law is all those things if you're able to keep it perfectly. He who does them will live by them. But that's the, that's the devastating deception. You see, sin doesn't remind you, you can't, you're never going to be able to do this. You, you, you stumbled right out of the gate when you were uh, born as a descendant of Adam. It was over, right, at the get-go. The guilt of Adam already clinging to you. And you with no ability to remove it. And then, and then every step of, of your little life, uh, as you grew, stumble, 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 stumble. You're not able to do it, Paul. See, sin deceives, deceived him by blinding him to that fact. And through that, it killed him. Because he was devoting his life to gaining righteousness through the law, and it cannot be done. Romans 3.20, no one, not a single human being who's ever walked planet earth save Christ, no one will be justified by the works of the law. It can't be done. And yet sin deceived Paul, and it killed him. It killed him because it led him down a road that he thought was life and actually was headed straight for eternal hell. And while Paul was eagerly then using the law as a stairway to heaven, sin was leading him on the path of destruction. And friends, there are billions and billions of people doing exactly the same thing today, many of them in church. You see, because there are people who are convinced, just assume that if they follow the precepts of their, of their religion, whether that be Christianity or Buddhism or Hinduism or whatever, whatever religion they might choose, if, or if they follow the dictates of their own conscience, if they strive to live a good life, if they're, if they're moral people, if, if they do more good than bad, they're convinced that heaven will be theirs. But sin has deceived them. It blinded them, and it's killing them. Every moment they spend seeking to gain their life through the law, in that sense, sin is leading them on the path to hell. And maybe it's leading you down that path this morning. You see, what the law shows us is that there's this devastating problem called sin. Does the law bring death? No, Paul says, Verse 13, did that which is good bring death to me? By no means. It was sin. Just points his finger right at it. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The law is good. It's holy. It's just. It's true. But there's sin within us, and that sin produces death. And, and by producing death through what is good, sin reveals its true diabolical colors. Because you see, a sin uses the good commandment to provoke disobedience and to lead people to hell. Sin proves to be sinful beyond measure. That's what Paul says. 
remember a, a story I read of a, a young Korean Christian. She had grown up in North Korea, but had managed to escape. She told of being a young girl, maybe five, six years old, and she was at school, and her teacher one day said, there's going to be a special contest. And whoever wins, I will get a prize. And she says, um, what I want you children to do, what you need to do is you need to go home and look for a special book. And she held up what that special book would look like. It was a Bible. And she says, if you see that special book in your home, don't say anything. Just come and tell me about it, and you'll receive a prize. And so this little girl was very excited because she was quite sure she had seen that book in her home. And, and she looked, and sure enough, it was there. And next day, she eagerly was back in school and, and, and happily raised her hand. Yes, I saw the book, and, and she received a little ribbon. And after school, she ran home, eager to show her parents her prize. But of course, when she got home, there was no one there. You see, the police had come while she was at school, and they arrested her parents for being Christian, and this little girl never saw her parents again. The teacher, you see, had used the precious innocence of a little girl to destroy her parents. That is pure evil. That is pure, unadulterated evil. Friends, sin in every flavor is pure, unadulterated evil. It uses what is good, the holy law of God, to provoke sin and produce eternal death. It deceives and lies, and it destroys, and there is no undoing the devastation. We can't undo the wickedness we've done. We can't undo the damnation that we deserve. We can't get our parent back. And the law is no help, you see. It's no help at all because sin just uses it again and again. And so we say with Paul, wretched people that we are, who can rescue us from this body of death? Some of you this morning are feeling that in particularly painful ways. The reality of your sin has stunned you broken your heart, weighs down against you. Maybe sins from long ago that God has brought to mind. Maybe the sins of this past week. And you're, you're just stunned by how stupid, how foolish, how wicked, how wrong you could be. Even professing everything you believe. Friends, that's, that's the reality of the Christian life. One of the disservices we do as, as mature believers, maybe particularly, is somehow we give the impression to younger believers that once you've sort of arrived as a Christian, the battle with sin isn't that, isn't that severe. And so that so often young people growing up in the church, as they come face to face with the reality of their own sinful desires and their own they feel captive to sin and, they, and they, they're just convinced I must be doing it wrong because no one else seems to be wrestling with this young person if that's you today I want you to know you're not doing it wrong that's the battle 
And forgive us, older Christians, for pretending that battle doesn't continue on and on and on until we die. That's the battle. And who can rescue us? Because we cannot possibly rescue ourselves. And the answer, of course, is thanks be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ. Roman, Paul says in Romans 8, what the law could not do, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. For sin and for sinners. You see, Jesus came to this earth very specifically to rescue us from our body of death. Jesus came to resolve the sin problem of our life by suffering the death that we deserved and bearing the wrath that we deserved, thus satisfying the demand of the law. Jesus resolves the sin problem by washing away all our guilt through his atoning blood. He resolves our sin problem by robing us in his perfect righteousness and giving us the immutable promise of everlasting life in his presence where we will dwell in all of his glory and all as a gift a gift received by faith alone, by grace alone. And it's our only hope. We have nothing else. I, I, was, I was talking with, sorry, I'm, I was talking to my brother Randy yesterday, and, and uh, he just said, and Randy has such a tender way of talking, he, he put his, uh, his head on my shoulder, and he just said, thank you for speaking the gospel to me. And I said, Randy, it's all I got. We got nothing else. And he said, we got nothing else. We have nothing else. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Maybe you're asking that this morning. What can fix this? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes a sinner like me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness, all of it. Now by this, I'll overcome. Now by this, I'll reach my home. The blood of Jesus Christ. No other hope, no other help. Without Jesus, friends, we are forever lost. With Jesus, we are eternally found, never to be lost again. Without Jesus, you will be defeated by sin. You will be destroyed by death, I promise you. But with Jesus, and in Jesus, and because of Jesus, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us all. That's the gospel truth. And so my question for you this morning is, what are you resting in? What road are you walking? Maybe you're walking the road that Paul was on, and you just assume that your obedience to the law, your membership in the church, your your good theological orthodoxy, your moral efforts. Maybe you've just assumed that that's sufficient for eternal life. And I, I just want you to hear, please hear, it's not sufficient. It's not sufficient. It can't 
It can't be sufficient. Your efforts cannot and will not ever resolve the problem of your sin. It can't. It won't. Don't let sin deceive you. But instead, God has offered a son and righteousness that comes by faith. And the beauty of the gospel is that this today is a day of grace, and you can come to Jesus today confessing your sin. You can come in repentance and faith today and come exactly like this. You see, friends, because the faith that saves is the faith that takes Jesus as your only hope and your only help and your only righteousness. It's not a faith that believes Jesus existed. The devil believes that too. It's a faith that specifically takes you in the truth of your sin and the truth of your lost condition without, without Christ and says, Jesus, you are my only hope and you're my only help and you're my only righteousness. I have nothing else but you. That's the faith that saves. That's the faith that Jesus says, you come to me with that faith and you will be saved. Maybe you're just a weary Christian today. Your sin is beating you up. Or maybe you just, over time, got busy with life and you've lost the joy of your salvation and and it's just a slog. Well, friend, let me tell you, this is where you can reclaim your hope and your joy. As you come to Jesus, just like this, come to me, all who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what Jesus says to weary Christians. As you come to Jesus again today with the burden of your sin, and you receive the gospel truth that God has loved you in Jesus Christ, and Jesus loved you and gave his life for you to atone for the evil of your sin, to rescue you from the death that you were in, to redeem you and make you today his beloved, cleansed, forgiven, heaven-bound child. That's God's description of you as you come to Jesus in faith and all because of grace. And you see, that's what makes it so that you're not under law. You're under grace. And everything that God will do in your life until you reach your final home will have the stamp of grace on it. Just grace, 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 grace. May it be true of all of us. Amen. Father in heaven, we come as people who by nature, by birth, by choice, by deed, are bankrupt. We have nothing to bring as a reason why you should love us. We have nothing to bring why, as a reason for you to be gracious and kind to us. We have nothing to bring as a reason why we should not be cast immediately and eternally into hell. Except Jesus except Jesus, the precious Lamb of God, who was offered up for us and for our sin to free us from the power and the penalty of sin and to make us the precious children of God. Father, you know every heart here. You know the hearts that are, that are just so weighed down by the truth of their sin. Lord, I pray that all of our hearts would 
would see the truth of our sin. We would not be foolish or flippant. We would not be casual. But we would sense what it means to have sinned against a loving, gracious, kind, holy God. And yet, Lord, standing there, then we would, we would see the beauty of Jesus as a Savior for sinners like us. And no matter then what difficulties and hardships we go through in this life, and there will be many, but Lord, we can walk that road in the confidence that we are loved and that we are forgiven and that we are no longer under the law. And though sin is remaining, it is a defeated foe and one day soon will be put aside. And that we have so many reasons then for joy and for peace, for God has loved us in Christ. And no one can take us away from that love. That grace reigns. And grace will lead us home and all because we belong to Jesus. Nothing in us. Oh, it's all because of him. So, oh God, give us those thankful, rejoicing, singing hearts, even through the tears. We'll pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and just celebrate this truth. It's not us, yet not I, but through Christ in me.
God's people said, Amen. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. May the Lord direct your heart to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Amen.